Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Recovery Talk. I am so excited to be joined by Jason Wood from Orthorexia Bites. We're going to have a discussion about orthorexia nervosa and also about men and eating disorders. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Hi, Jason. Hey, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for uh, having me on today. I'm super excited to uh, talk with you and to uh, hopefully raise some awareness. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. So I actually, I found you on Instagram and I really like the work you're doing. And one of the first posts that I saw from you that I clicked on that I kind of like stuck with me was one where you described, you know, your advocacy and how how difficult it was, you know, to kind of get your word across. And you you described it as, you know, it's almost like throwing spaghetti on the wall and seeing what sticks. And that organizations have been like, oh, yeah, we are already talking about men with eating disorders, we're already talking about this. And then obviously they're not. Could you maybe like explain a bit on that? Like what, what has your difficulties been in getting your word across? Right. So it's it's very interesting because when when I first started my blog, I was thinking, all right, I've got a story to share, but I don't know who I should share it with. And when I first went online and started started promoting the blog, I noticed that I was oftentimes talking with other individuals who were doing the exact same thing I am, sharing their stories and trying to raise awareness about eating disorders. And I was like, I've got to reach a broader audience. I've got to get out there to those folks who aren't hearing these messages and don't know um you know, that the stigmas and the stereotypes around eating disorders that they need to be tackled, they need to be confronted. So I just started almost in a way, kind of like a salesman, cold calling and just trying to get my story out there in front of any audience that could possibly listen. And oftentimes it is, it's like throwing that spaghetti against the wall to see, you know, is this organization going to be receptive? Are they going to listen to me? There's still that stereotype that runs rampant when it comes to eating disorders, that it usually affects young, skinny, white females. And here I am, a 36-year-old guy battling a lesser known eating disorder on top of that with orthorexia. And uh, oftentimes it's difficult to get uh, different organizations to be receptive to my story because they feel like I'm not going to hit their broadest demographic. They feel like I'm very kind of, you know, the audience is small and uh, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, to me, one individual going through an eating disorder is equal to another individual going through an eating disorder, regardless of the type of eating disorder they have, regardless of their gender, their sexuality, any of that. And um, that's why it is, it's tricky at times because there is no, no roadmap. There is no reach out to this person or reach out to that person. I've oftentimes just got to get out there and keep sharing my story with honestly anybody who will listen to it. Yeah, wow, that is so profound. And also want to like applaud you for, you know, your bravery in sharing. And it's so true what you're saying, you know, that there is this idea that eating disorders is something that only happened to uh, young, thin, white women and girls, right? And as soon as someone is outside of that, then there is just, you know, invalidation and also I this is one thing I've been thinking a lot especially with men uh, and eating disorders and I would love to hear it like your opinion on this so first of all I think 
Could it be that for men, it is more difficult for men to acknowledge to themselves that they have an eating disorder? And then if they do, actually going to a doctor's office, then actually getting that doctor to acknowledge it and give them uh, resources, send them in the right direction, the doctor is also less likely to identify it as well. What do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. As guys growing up, we are just taught not to really have emotions or show our insecurities because that would make us inferior. That would make us appear weak. And I have the the perfect example that I share sometimes. And it was, I was stung by a bee in elementary school in second grade. And rather than tell anybody about it, I held on to that pain all day because I didn't want to be, you know, boys don't cry. I didn't want to tell the teacher that I was in pain. So I sat there with that pain all day and I just kept it to myself. And that was exactly what it was like when I was battling the eating disorder as well. I was going through so much pain. I was going through all this insecurity on the inside, but I was hiding behind a mask. I was acting like everything was fine. So nobody around me really suspected anything. I think also the fact that I was a guy uh, that never raised the flags when it came to my doctors or to my friends, my family. They weren't looking for an eating disorder at my age or with my gender because the stereotypes dictate otherwise. So I think that those are several barriers that men face. First of all, we're, we're just not comfortable when it comes to sharing our emotions or admitting it. And then when it comes to the seeking help portion of it, we oftentimes question if we're sick enough because we don't meet the demographic. We don't meet that stereotype. So for me, I had battled an eating disorder for probably 15 years, but the whole time I never even realized it. The thought never crossed my mind because I thought as a guy, it couldn't happen to me. Wow. Yeah. That 15 years. Imagine that. And it's that thing. If, a, if you were a woman, would it be identified? Right. Right. That's the thing. Yeah, I often wonder, had my doctor, had I been a woman, had my doctors maybe, you know, questioned some of the dietary choices I was making or been more concerned when they saw my lower vital signs. Uh, but yeah, none of that was, none of that was acknowledged. If anything, it was praised. And um, I think that's, that's a common misconception that's out there right now. Yeah, well, the, what you said about praise, I think that's so spot on. And I see this particularly with orthorexia, right? That orthorexia becomes almost like a social, more socially acceptable form of an eating disorder, right? Like what I hear very often when I talk with people with orthorexia is that they get almost applauded, right? And of course, it is orthorexia. It's, it's not about health. You know, the person experiencing it in the moment might feel like this is about health, but it is orthorexia is not healthy. Right. And I feel like this is also something that there is a lack of training amongst medical professionals about orthorexia. And as soon as someone is having a very restrictive diet, they're just like, oh, yeah, they're just, you know, health conscious. Right. Yeah, I was often, often praised all the time. Um, I had a very interesting conversation with my therapist actually yesterday, and we were talking about a situation I just ran into recently where I was triggered and, and going through some difficult times when it came to uh, mealtime. And he goes, well, how would you have handled that conversation when you were, you know, active in the eating disorder? And I'm like, I didn't have to hide anything. With orthorexia, it was out there in the open, but it was oftentimes people just assumed it was a diet. They would praise me for amazing willpower or something like that. And I was like, I didn't have to hide orthorexia. And I think that's what makes it so scary is that it is 
much more prevalent than we realize when we look at how people become obsessed with these fad diets and these different food rules that come about. And uh, when it comes to the medical professionals that are out there, I've had to teach my treatment team about orthorexia. It's been through my experience that they're learning more. When I first presented this to my therapist and my nutritionist, they, they didn't even know how to pronounce the term. And I, you know, I was in the same boat. I was months into my own treatment before I first heard the term. So that, that really concerns me because I think there's a lot of individuals out there who are displaying orthorexic, orthorexic behaviors. But right now in the current diet culture world we live in, a lot of that is just assumed that they're doing it for for their own health and that they're making the right choices when in actuality it's doing a lot more harm than good exactly that is the thing with orthorexia is that it's not only is it often missed but it is can even also be praised right because we live in a diet culture that praises certain behaviors and of course it is not about health I remember myself I also come from a background of a nice mixture of anorexia bulimia and orthorexia and I just remember that it is just such a disconnect because you try and convince yourself like this is no I'm I'm just trying you know to be healthy but then your health mental mentally and physically is really really suffering Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious to see, because for me with, with orthorexia, it was, I would look at these different fad diets and I would say, Ooh, that, that's not healthy about that part. That, that, that diet goes too far, but then I'd be like, okay, well, I'll pick and choose and I'll just put together my own fad diet. And you know, this, these will be my food rules, but I'm going to stay safe. Like nothing bad's going to happen to me. So I'm curious if like with you battling that mix of um, the different conditions, if you were also thinking, you know, I'll just take this portion of it and that portion of it, and then I'll be okay. And um, it's, it, it leaves a lot to, you know, it, it can lead to some damaging consequences, but it's an interesting point to bring up. Yeah, that is so true because orthorexia, it just doesn't run on logic, right? So for instance, in my case, I could go and have a binge and purge session on a bunch of foods that I deemed forbidden, right? But then anorexia would kick in and I would restrict and orthorexia would kick in and I would get have all of these bizarre food rules. And I can relate a lot to what you're saying with, you know, picking and choosing, right? It is almost <laughs> like eating disorder will look for foods to ban more than foods to eat, right? So as soon as there is a new diet, for instance, oh, the paleo diet, then you look at what that diet bans and you ban it. And then low carb, oh yeah, then you ban and then it comes to point where you ban so many foods that like (laughs) what is there left right because this is one thing I've realized and also one thing I always tell clients is if you were to you know ban every food that there is some like uh, I was going to use the word conspiracy but some debate on whether or not it's good for you if you were to ban every single food of that what would you end up with like ice cubes not even that because maybe there's fluoride in the water right What, what would you end up with you know so I think that is just like the one thing to realize. And I think this is one thing that for me in my recovery, realizing that there is no such thing as the perfect diet and that my desire to have that perfect diet was actually not a desire rooted in health. It was one rooted in control. They, that I think for me was just like the thing that I needed to realize. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you look hard enough, you can find something bad about it 
every food out there. And that's how it, that's the point that it got to for me where there was no variety left. My meals were looking the exact same every single day. And it was probably only a matter of time until those foods that I was still eating would have eventually found their way on the bad list. And now in recovery, I can look back and realize that, yeah, there is no perfect diet. If there was, we'd all be on it, but there is no perfect diet. And a lot of times I think it just has to do with the intentions of, you know, the founder of the diet. What, what are they looking to ban? What, what's the latest uh, criminal that we've got to put away? And um, now I'm, I'm really embracing the concept of intuitive eating and it's really helping me heal that relationship with food. And remember that at the end of the day, it's just fuel. There is no good food. There is no bad food. It is fuel. Exactly. Exactly. That you, you used such an interesting word. You said like like that. It is almost like these like diet you know gurus looking to kind of what is the latest criminal, right? What is the latest mm-hmm. bad food to use? And that made me think of something. I'm not sure if you've noticed this, but I sometimes feel like with orthorexia or just in general with diet culture and all of these different diets and diet gurus. It almost has a bit of a religious feel, right? Like this is like, you, for instance, you enter a specific diet, then you have that community and it's us versus them, right? Some foods are sinful, like the language that's being used. And I don't know, there's just some almost like weird religious undertones on it. Do you agree or what do you think? Absolutely. Yeah, that is a that is a fantastic point. And I can I can totally see that because it gets it reaches the point where it feels like, you know, rather rather than going out for a meal, it's almost like you're going to church every time because um, you're, you're following these rules and you feel like you're part of a community in a way. And I know that a lot of uh, individuals turn to religion for that sense of community and you you feel like you're part of something that you're you're like a follower follower uh, to these rules and you're adhering to them. And yeah, if you break any of them, then it's it's worst case scenario and you've got to like plead for forgiveness. And uh, it can be, it can definitely weigh very heavy on one's mind. So I can, I can see that connection there where it's almost like in a way, some of these food rules become sort of like commandments for individuals battling orthorexia. Wow. Yeah. Commandments. That is such a, you know, profound way to put it. And like, you know, going for meals, like going to church. And I wonder like why that is. Cause one thing I've noticed is that, you know, when it comes to eating disorders and also recovery, the thought and prospect of having a food that is not controlled by, you know, having a life that's not controlled by food, right. Can mm-hmm. seem so terrifying that I wonder, cause I see a lot of people who, for instance, they have an eating disorder and then they think they recover, but they actually go from having an eating disorder to getting caught up in some very niche diet. Like maybe they end up in some raw, vegan, fruitarian corner of the internet, right? And I wonder like what maybe is it some kind of like emptiness that draws people towards it? Uh, Like, oh, what what am I going to do if I can't focus on food? And well, if I can't focus on starving myself, at least then I can focus on eating quote unquote, a specific way, right? Right, right. And it <clears throat> it reaches the point where you are, you're looking for that control. For me, I went through some very turbulent times in my adolescence and in my 20s. And throughout that entire time, that's oftentimes why my I had such a strict set of rules around food is because I thought, 
okay, this gives me some control. This helps kind of give me some, some sort of identity still. And I think oftentimes individuals are looking for some sort of identity when they go on these different diets. And especially if you're going through recovery from an eating disorder, in a way you can feel very lost at times. I know, I know that I have, I've hit several plateaus in my recovery. Even just recently, I, I've realized that I've kind of hit another plateau. And um, it's like, we take a step outside of that comfort zone a little bit. And, you know, we break some of those food rules, but we can't go all the way quite yet. So it's like we, we settle where we're at, and then we'll take a couple more baby steps out. And um, it's, it's very interesting, because I think in a lot of ways for individuals recovering from any type of eating disorder, orthorexia is often a stop along the way, because a lot of people think, okay, well, well, I'm eating foods again, so that must be okay. But they don't realize that food is still controlling them. They're not the ones controlling food as much as orthorexia or any type of eating disorder wants to make you believe otherwise. Yes. And that is also a thing I see is that people, for instance, they are in recovery and then they start eating more. And then they actually, what was happening is that they are, you know, only eating safe foods, right? And unfortunately, their treatment teams will very often be, um, they won't quite identify this because they're like, oh yeah, my patient is clearly eating more. But when you actually go into it, you see that there is a very rigid form, like they're still avoiding food, sometimes entire food groups, right? And I think that's like something, again, I think treatment professionals, they really, really need more training in orthorexia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, I've been battling that myself recently, and I, I've come across the term kind of quasi recovery. And I think that could very easily sum up where I'm at right now, where I have, I'm, I've got a lot more freedom from food than I once did, but I'm not all the way there yet. It still has a certain level of control over me. And I think it's, it's difficult for some of my treatment team to adjust to that because we so much, we put so much focus on the early stages of recovery that we forget about the individuals who, you know, they might've restored their weight back or they might appear like they're eating the foods again that they once banned. So um, I think, I think there has to be focus, especially for medical professionals when it comes to individuals who are facing challenges, perhaps a little bit farther on in their recovery than just the very beginning. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm literally sitting here like nodding because oh, you can't see that. But <laughs> like, yes, yes, yes. That is so, so true. Because the thing with an eating disorder is that an eating disorder, one of the symptoms of an eating disorder is kind of self-invalidation, right? Like the eating disorder will tell you that it doesn't exist while simultaneously controlling your life. I just call it Schrodinger's illness because <laughs> it's like, it's like, I'm not, I'm like, I'm completely controlling your life, but I'm also not here. You don't have an eating disorder, but also don't eat that. Right. And it, it's, it's just such a, like, it's such a paradox. And because invalidation is such a key symptom of an eating disorder, if you feel invalidated by your treatment team, for instance, not quite picking up that, hey, this is still a problem, that that really creates very fertile ground for the eating disorder to keep thriving. Because it's like, oh, my treatment team said it was fine to, you know, pick the, I don't know, pick that product, that food product instead of that, right? But yep. I think it's very difficult for people who haven't been there to know how important, like to know how important it is to challenge those food rules for full recovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, I think it's very important. One thing that I 
questioned when I first decided to kind of go public with my story and start advocating for eating disorder awareness was the fact that I didn't want people to think that I was suddenly healed or that I was suddenly just recovered overnight because from the outside, sometimes it might appear that I am, or it might appear that I'm doing all the right things, but it's still, there's a lot more going on beneath the surface than individuals realize. I think it, it takes somebody who's experienced an eating disorder themselves who can who can truly understand you know what that internal struggle still looks like even though all signs might point to recovery from the outside yes that is also something I would love to hear a bit more about because you know you have gone public with your story and I very often have people asking me like Amalia should I go public with my story should I not and I always tell them like you know, of course, that is your choice, but be prepared that people sometimes will treat you as if it is kind of okay for them to go to you and tell them, and they will go to you and tell details about their own diet or their own difficulties with food to you without you necessarily, what can I say, consenting. Of course, it's nice people feel safe and want to seek out support, but I remember that myself when I went public about my eating disorder, I did that a little bit too early, probably. I was kind of public in my recovery And then, of course, having support was amazing and knowing that speaking out helped people, that was amazing. But it was also that thing of people suddenly became very comfortable sharing their diets and sharing their weights and their food rules with me, right? Is that something you've experienced? Yeah, that is something I've experienced as well. And I've I've noticed it, especially among the male population, which is a big reason why I'm doing what I'm doing. I want guys to feel comfortable enough to finally open up to somebody. And I realized that that comes with a huge responsibility on my end. Uh, I've had several individuals kind of push me towards coaching and, and telling me that I should, I should work with men who have eating disorders. And I, I push back and I'm like, I'm not there yet. I'm not ready for that. Because when you open yourself up to that, that you're taking another person's life in your hands, basically, at that point, you are taking on a major responsibility. So while I continue to share my story, and I I welcome other individuals to share their own stories with me, I do make sure that they're aware that I I can't supplement, you know, the help of their treatment team. I can't replace their therapist or their nutritionist, but I can simply be there to be uh, somebody that they that might know what they're experiencing and somebody that can remind them that they're not alone. But it is, it's one of those things where once you kind of share your own vulnerable side, it's it's pretty incredible to see how other folks will share your their vulnerable side with you. But um, when you do decide to go public, it can be extremely healing, but it can also be, be dangerous. It can be kind of like a plane on a slippery slope there a little bit when you're still going through recovery yourself. And uh, one thing that I'm trying to do right now in my recovery is to make sure that I'm still prioritizing it. At the end of the day, uh, my advocacy work has to always come second to my own personal health. And uh, that's that's one thing that I I made sure to uh, set some very clear boundaries to make sure that I'm still taking care of myself because I can't help other people unless I'm taking care of myself first. That is so, so, so important. And I, it took me many years of uh, having been recovered until I felt like I was ready to work with people with eating disorders. I needed those years to, you know, even though I was recovered, I needed those years to just, what can I say, 
grow steady in my own recovery right and of course now it is fine and now I really enjoy working with people eating disorders because I I kind of I get it of course we are all different but when someone says they're petrified of this and that like I can understand I can sympathize because I've been there right but it's definitely something I always tell people because a lot of people who have or have had an eating disorder do want to kind of I guess, give back to the community and work with people with eating disorders and always tell them, like, put your own recovery first. You know, it's like what they say when when you're on a plane uh, in case of an emergency, put on your own, uh, you know, safety mask or is it safety mask, air mask. I don't know. Oxygen mask. Oxygen yeah. mask. But yeah, before you. It's long since I've flown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> before you help others. Right. So I think that is just so, so key. And uh, the, like here with like eating disorder awareness week and all of these things like the most important thing people can do for the case of eating disorder recovery is to focus on their own recovery because they deserve that right not i think a lot of people with eating disorder have almost just like a bit of a martyr thing where they feel like oh it's okay for me to sacrifice myself for the cause but I always tell people put yourself first so it's so 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 important to hear you know that that is something you also are very aware of Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that a lot of individuals with eating disorders can struggle with, because I've always been the type of person who could give compassion to other people much easier than I could give compassion to myself. So I find it interesting that 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 kind of carries over to recovery, too, where oftentimes I'll be more willing to help other people in their own recovery and forget about my own recovery. So that is something I am definitely aware of and working on. Yeah, that is such a commentary. I see I see this with clients all the time where, you know, they will have so much sympathy and compassion for other people, but if it is about themselves, it's different, right? So for instance, they might beat themselves up for something and I will ask them like, well, if there was a friend of you that was experiencing this, would you be, would you talk like this to a friend? And they're always like, no, 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 no. But then it's like, yeah, then why are you talking like that to yourself? It's like, yeah, but you know, that's different. No, no, you know, there is this like, you know, not a lot of self-compassion, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I treat, I I always put everybody else before myself for some reason. And uh, now, now I'm working on putting myself first and, and there's absolutely nothing selfish about that because through helping myself, I can help other people. And that's pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is so, so important. I, I say the same thing, you know, because I also have to set very clear boundaries with social media, like I will get certain DMs that I don't have capacity to answer. And I always tell people like, I the reason why I'm putting myself first is also if I put myself first, that also that kind of benefits everyone, right? Because if I don't put myself first, then I will burn out and never can never do this work, right? And I yeah. think that's the thing by if someone is not putting themselves first, they will eventually burn out, right? Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And with, you know, right now we're in the midst of eating disorder awareness week. And I've already told myself that next week I'm taking it off. Next week I am going to focus solely on me um, because I need to. That's that's the way that I can be the best benefit to everybody. Otherwise, yeah, it will lead to that burnout. And uh, if you burn out, you can't help anybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is so, so, so important. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this was such an interesting conversation. And before uh, you go, I would love to ask you, what is it, something that you feel like people just don't quite get about eating disorders, and in particular about, you know, men with eating disorders? What is that some, something that people don't get, including maybe within the community? 
Yeah. Ooh, that's a, that's a good one. I could come up with uh, quite a few answers, I think, because there's a lot of misconceptions out there around eating disorders. But I think, I think the one thing it starts with is that eating disorders can impact anybody at any age and they can come in any form that there is no specific, you know, set of eating disorder behaviors. You could, as we were talking about earlier, you could have a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and you might not meet the diagnostic criteria for something, but that doesn't mean you're, you're not battling an eating disorder still. So I think that's the one thing that I, I just want to continue to share for everybody out there, and in particular for the men, that just because you don't match the stereotypes that might be in place, it doesn't mean that you're not worthy of help. It doesn't mean that you're not sick enough for help. Um, that's something that I hear quite a bit is, oh, I'm not sick enough. I, I, I don't want to take away resources from people who are so sick. This isn't a competition. At the end of the day, if, if you're battling something and your quality of life is being impacted, if your mental health is being impacted because of your relationship with food, then it's time to talk to someone. And uh, that, is, that is that first step on Recovery Road. Yeah, that's so true. And it's it's so interesting because there is this like, oh, I'm not sick enough, right? But you wouldn't talk like that if it was any other illness. Like you wouldn't have been like, imagine if someone had cancer, you wouldn't be like, yeah, let's just wait until it, the, the tumor spreads a bit more and, and then you might get help, right? No, I think early intervention is just so, so, so key. And I say this, but at the same time, I also know that a lot of people, when they get go to their doctor in the earlier stages, they are dismissed, right? So it's like there's just like it feels like just the system is quite broken right it is it is and um it's one of those things where you know I, even after i received my diagnosis i questioned it because i was diagnosed with an unspecified eating disorder at the time and to me that just didn't sound real it sounded made up or something so i often i questioned whether i was sick enough and it didn't help that my doctor didn't even really know who to refer me to because my situation was unique and i think that speaks volumes to how the medical professionals out there need to be trained better when it comes to mental health and um, eating disorders. And I think that's one thing that is that is too often overlooked in a society that always seems to prioritize physical health over mental health. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, there are so many stereotypes and unspecified eating disorder is the most common eating disorder. Yet it seems that most treatment professionals, the one, the one eating disorder they've heard of is, you know, anorexia and maybe bulimia, right? So it's like there is just a bit of a disconnect there, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, and that's also why, you know, awareness is so, so, so important. And I hope things are going, you know, in, in the right direction. I feel like there is at least, a, I feel, I, I'm trying to say optimistic that there is more important conversations happening in, you know, recovery communities, medical communities about eating disorders and how stereotypes are harmful. I'm not sure. Do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. I am just this week alone with um, Eating Disorder Awareness Week going on right now. I am really moved by seeing the different types of individuals who are being represented when it comes to eating disorder stories being shared. And they're um, individuals from communities of color or their guys or they're individuals battling the unspecified eating disorders that we rarely talk about. And I'm starting to see more of a movement. I'm starting to see 
uh, those stereotypes get broken a little bit more and challenged a little bit more. So so I think we're making progress, but I'm going to keep sharing my story until everybody out there knows that um, eating disorders can impact anyone and they can come in a variety of shapes and sizes. Yes. Amen. And speaking of which, where can, you know, people find you also know you got a book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I'm still getting used to that. It's still weird to call myself an author, but uh, my blog is orthorexiabites.com. And I'm also on Instagram and Twitter uh, under orthorexiabites. And then on the website itself, you can find more information about my book, uh, Starving for Survival. That is just, you know, my memoir, my journey battling orthorexia from the time that the seeds were planted as a young child um, up until present day, as I um, am still you know, on that process of recovery. Thank you so much for the work you do. And yeah, you guys should all go follow, follow Jason on Instagram. I'm following you and I really, really appreciate your account. So thank you for all the work you're doing. And thank you so much for your time and coming here on this podcast and sharing your, your journey and your perspectives. It's a very interesting conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for everything that you're doing and for giving me the opportunity to share my story. So uh, it makes that throwing spaghetti at the wall a little bit easier when I when I've got a great conversation, uh, great people to share conversations with like yourself. So uh, thank you so much. No, it's a pleasure. It's good when the spaghetti, you know, sticks (laughs) if I'm using the expression correctly. I hope you guys enjoy this episode and thanks a lot to Jason for joining. Definitely check him out, check out his work. And I look forward to seeing you guys next week with another episode of Recovery Talk.